Hi, good afternoon, you're right. What's the purpose of your trip? I'm actually here making a documentary about how you become president. Who are you following around to learn how you become a president? Uh, I've got some interviews lined up with different people, different universities. Well, that's not a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> Really think that you're going to get an unbiased opinion? No, I don't expect it. Yeah. Where are you going to be staying? Staying in Cambridge tonight, a friend of mine. And then where are you going? Going up to New Hampshire first. Going to Dixville Notch, which is this tiny place up in. Yeah, I know where. Oh, yeah, yeah. See the old hotel. Four right fingers on the scanner, please. Now your thumb. Are you traveling alone or with somebody else? Traveling alone. Once again, those passengers arriving on BS11 from London Heathrow, you can claim your bags from Carousel number three. Have you done this before? Uh, only in the UK, really. What'd you go to Egypt for? Uh, holiday vacation. When did you go there? Do you know what? I honestly can't remember. Three, four years ago, I guess. Two, two years ago. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. The always fun and light-hearted and uh, faintly jocular folk of the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement there, kindly recapping the story so that I don't have to. This is episode three. It involves another road trip. Welcome to the New Hampshire primary. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Hello, hello, hello. My name's Dave Smith and welcome back to the How to Become President of the United States podcast. Now, today we're up in the very northeast of the continental United States in the so-called Granite State of New Hampshire, which is the second state in the entire country to vote for who should be the nominee for both the Democrat and the Republican parties. But the very first primary election following the Iowa caucus elections, which was slightly different and which we discussed in the previous episode. Today, we're going to do a whole number of things. We're going to uh, talk about what it's like to burst into tears when you're running for president. I'm going to swing by an old friend of mine called Catherine Schwartz and her boyfriend Jeff who are going to give us a bit of a tour and as part of that tour we're going to go right up to the north of the state to a fantastic place called Dixfield Notch which has just got one of the most fantastic voting traditions throughout the entirety of the US. We're going to stop by and talk to the guys and girls there about their midnight voting rituals at an old hotel. But before we get into all of that, I just want to start by giving you some background to the state and its history and by talking to some of the people who actually live and vote there. As I think I mentioned previously, the voters in New Hampshire view themselves as fiercely independent and often take the view that actually sometimes people do a bit better in Iowa than they expected and Iowa tends to throw up some wild cards. It's the role of New Hampshire as the second state to vote and the first primary in the nation to really put people through a tough test. It's traditionally a very socially liberal but actually economically quite conservative state. So to get a greater feel for this, I wanted to talk to some voters and I was fortunate enough to find one who's been voting in New Hampshire his entire life. My name is Scott Tranchmontane. I live in Bedford, New Hampshire, and I've been a New Hampshire voter ever since I was allowed to vote. I started off by asking Scott whether or not my characterization of the state and its demographics and its voters was something that's always held true. The voting makeup of New Hampshire has evolved quite a bit uh, over the last 20 years. Um, back in the 
1950s, 60s, 70s, and even through the 80s and the early 90s, New Hampshire was really seen as a, as a rock-solid Republican conservative state. Um, since the mid-90s, we've had a lot of people uh, move to the state from other parts of the country, including Massachusetts, uh, which is directly to our south and other parts of New England. And what we've seen in all the election data is that the state is really becoming a lot more purple. And what I mean by that is uh, if you're a red state, you're a predominantly Republican state. If you're, if you're a blue state, you're primarily a, a Democrat state. And New Hampshire is truly purple. We actually have, I mean, one thing that characterizes New Hampshire voters is our, is our independence, our independent streak. There are actually more registered independents, we call them undeclareds, in New Hampshire than there are registered Republicans or Democrats. So the undeclareds is the largest uh, uh, voting block in New Hampshire. And do you think that means that historically you tend to go for ind- candidates with an independent streak? So I'm thinking of John McCain who won here. And yeah. uh, John Kasich is another example. Yeah, I mean, we I think New Hampshire, by and large, values uh, politicians who can think and act independent of their party. Um, you know, in the United States, in the in the primaries, you you see the you see the Republicans always running to the right to the conservative because the conservatives generally vote more than independents in the primaries. An independent or an undeclared voter in New Hampshire can vote in a primary but they have to pick a side. They can either vote in the Republican primary or they can vote in a Democrat primary. So specifically to your question, yeah, candidates like John McCain, who uh, obviously is a Republican, but has built up uh, a legacy of of being independent and bucking the party when he felt he needed to, uh, those types of candidates do well here. Mm. And so when- And, and And also by example on the Democrat side, Bernie Sanders wasn't even a Democrat. And he ran in the Democrat primary. He's always been uh, an independent, uh, I think the only independent senator uh, in America. Um, and he won the New Hampshire primary. Indeed. What Scott's saying here really just bears out the experience that I had time and time again up and down the state talking to voters. It didn't matter if they were registered Democrats or Republicans. The one thing that really seemed to unite everybody was this fierce sense of independence that New Hampshire voters really took a sense of pride in. I think it's summed up actually in their state motto, which is one of the boldest and arguably one of the best known of all the 50 states. And the state motto is simply live free or die. And the story behind it is fantastic. It's, it's actually an adaptation from a toast, which was given by a guy called General John Stark. Now, John Stark was one of New Hampshire's best known soldiers during the American Revolutionary War. And towards the end of his life in 1809, he was invited to give a toast at uh, a, a reunion for the Battle of Bennington, which is a big battle which he'd fought in, but he was unable to get there because of ill health. So instead, he opted to just send a letter outlining his whole toast. Now, these things are normally quite long and make sure they name it, check everybody and get everything in. John Starks didn't. It simply had one line which read, Live free or die, death is not the worst of evils. So it's that kind of bloody-mindedness, I think, that, again, fierce independence which sums up the spirit of New Hampshire and its voters. Anyway, back to Scott again, because there's a whole number of other traditions as well, which are, if not as important, then arguably more so. And one of them is, if you come to New Hampshire to run for president, you've got to shake a lot of hands, you've got to meet a lot of people. I heard people say things even like, well, unless a candidate sits in my living room, I'm not going to vote for them. Here's Scott reeling off all the candidates he's met over the years, simply going about his day-to-day business. 
Uh, I met uh, Lamar Alexander, who was running for president in 1996, and George W. Bush uh, in his first campaign in 2000. Um, I've also met uh, McCain, uh, Kasich, uh, Bill Clinton. I can't even remember all of the candidates I've met, but the thing about New Hampshire is if you come to New Hampshire, expect, and you're, you're a political candidate, expect to press the flesh. You know, the people want to not only see you and listen to you, they, they want to touch you, um, which makes it interesting for some of them. <laughs> yeah, um, wanting to be touched or, or arguably not wanting to be touched would make it interesting for some of them, and indeed it did. And that last line is an editor's dream in many ways because it would have been the absolutely perfect segue into the Bill Clinton part of this episode, which is going to feature heavily later on. But instead, I'm not going to go down that route because I had one final question that I wanted to ask, which was incredibly important. So I put to Scott, uh, much like I put to the good folk of Iowa in the previous episode, is it right that these two states have such a huge role in the nominating process? No, I think the beauty of having Iowa and New Hampshire start the presidential primary process is that we're small states. And so unlike large states like a California or a Texas or even a Florida, um, the candidates can come here and they can visit every corner of the state without having to, without having to just fly from one tarmac to another. They can hold town halls. I think, I think it was McCain who held over 100 town halls in New Hampshire. And, and that means he literally had meetings in towns with, in, in, uh, you know, in theaters and auditoriums um, or, or hotel salons where, you know, a lot of people came out, you know, probably just, a, probably just maybe under 100 the first time. But by the end of the primary season, he was getting 1,000, 1,500 people at his events. That's harder to do in, in larger states where um, the big cities are spread out. I think the candidates enjoy having Iowa and New Hampshire as a testing ground because it's really where they have the most direct voter contact. Again, partly because of our size and our geography. Um, so I, it's, a, it's a great kind of training ground and an early, uh, early testing ground for their messages. And it winnows the field, you know. A few years ago, we were able to say that, you know, you don't, you can't become president, you know, without, without winning New Hampshire. Um, and I think that was true up until Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, although people think he won New Hampshire, he didn't. Um, and then he obviously went on to become president. Uh, George W. Bush lost the primary to McCain. Uh, but he obviously went on to win the general election. So, um what was true before about New Hampshire always picking the winners uh, is not true today, but New Hampshire certainly goes a long way in winnowing the field. Clinton, Clinton, I heard it. There was a Clinton segue in there as well. We'll, we'll use that one instead. Um, so as Scott said, New Hampshire plays a phenomenally important role still in narrowing the field for who becomes the presidential candidate. You can win in Iowa, fair enough, but if you win in New Hampshire as well, then the game is really, really on. Or at the same time, it can totally change the momentum. Someone can win in Iowa and then lose heavily in New Hampshire, and all of a sudden, someone who looked like the front runner no longer appears to be the candidate who can appeal to more moderate parts of the country. So a bit about the history then. And no discussion of the New Hampshire primaries can start anywhere else other than this night in 1992. While the evening is young, and we don't know yet what the final tally will be, I think we know enough to say with some certainty 
that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. Now, for those of you like me who perhaps back in 1992 were far more interested in Eric Cantona's move from Leeds to Manchester United or listening to The Cure, there's a couple of things to say first and foremost about that election. Firstly, as Tim Stanley said in our last episode, it wasn't an election that many Democrats thought they were going to win. The incumbent president, George H.W. Bush, had been relatively successful and was doing relatively well in the polls, to the extent that Saturday Night Live, the famous satirical sketch show, actually ran a sketch that year called The Race Not to Become the Next President, in which the leading contenders supposedly for Democratic nomination, including Mario Cuomo and Dick Gephardt, all tried to answer questions in a debate, giving the worst possible answers they could so that they didn't have to run. Subsequently, a little-known governor from the state of Arkansas decided that this was his moment. Now, he'd flirted with running four years before, but he'd given such a disastrous speech at the Democratic Party National Convention, he'd actually got booed on stage and had to go on to a late-night TV programme in order to laugh it off, but it decided that that wasn't his time to run. This time, however, with the field relatively empty of heavyweights, Bill Clinton threw his hat into the ring. Now, Iowa was an interesting contest that year because it had a native son running called Tom Harkin, a guy who was actually from the state of Iowa. So Tom Harkin absolutely blew everybody else out of the water, getting about 74% of the vote. But nonetheless, Bill Clinton still did really quite badly there. He came in with 2.8% of the vote. So by the time he got to New Hampshire, he really, really needed a good performance if he was going to win the nomination. And then everything just went wrong for him. Rumours which had been circulating for a long, long time down in Arkansas came out through the national press. Uh, a lady called Jennifer Flowers alleged um, sexually inappropriate conduct, to say the very, very least, with him. And then the response which Bill Clinton put out, he said, um, it was all, I'm, I'm not going to do his accent, I can't, I can't do Bill Clinton's accent. He said, it was only when money came out, when tabloids went down there offering people money to say that she'd been involved with me, then she changed her story because there's a recession on. Now, this landed incredibly badly because there was a recession on, implying that these people were purely motivated by money. And the Jennifer Flowers story was front page for a long time and really caused a lot of people who had previously seen Clinton as perhaps the uh, embodiment of youth and vigour to question his character. And Clinton was losing support amongst progressives as well. So on the question of character, just the month before, he had chosen as the governor of Arkansas to fly home to the state, especially to oversee an execution, to make sure that it happened for a young man named Ricky Ray Rector who had killed a police officer but as part of that process had been shot himself had effectively had a full frontal lobotomy and many many people said was in no fit state to stand trial he had the mental functioning of a five-year-old to give you an example of how ill the man was when the death sentence was handed down to him when the judge said that he was going to be put to death via electrocution his response was electricity does that mean we can get televisions in the cells now um, it's an incredibly interesting case. It was written at, at length by Christopher Hitchens in his wonderful book, Nobody Left to Lie To. But Clinton had chosen to take this uh, opportunity, I suppose, of this young black man's execution to prove that he was tough and had the metal needed to be president of the United States. It had gone down well in some quarters, but needlessly to say, amongst some of the progressives within the Democratic Party, it had gone down very, very badly indeed. But truth be told, actually, the public voting at large didn't care about that as much as I and perhaps some other people did. The thing that really cut through was Jennifer Flowers. And Clinton had to do something to address this. Previously, Democratic candidates like Gary Hart, who thought he was going to win the nomination uh, four years beforehand, had had to pull out because of affairs. And the scandal was seen as hugely, hugely, hugely difficult for his candidacy. 
He and his wife Hillary appeared on uh, a television programme called 60 Minutes just before the Super Bowl, which is the most watched night of television in America, in order to give their interpretation of events. But even that really didn't cut through. So a few days out, getting hammered in the debates from every angle, Clinton was in real trouble. And this, this is where we get the masterful lessons of two things about the New Hampshire primary. The first one is that you've got to go out and be dogged, if you'll forgive the pun, which is coming up later on. And the second one is it's all about expectations and the expectation game. Nobody expected Clinton now to win, but he fought like his political life depended on it, as indeed it did. He went out into the cold streets of New Hampshire. He shook as many hands as he possibly, possibly could. He held town hall after town hall after town hall. He was working 16, 18 hours a day. And by the end of it all, he was losing his voice. And he created this image of himself as the put-upon underdog. And suddenly, people saw something in him. People started to get behind him. And it was all brought together in this incredible clip, which came to kind of just sum up the spirit of his fight in the New Hampshire primary. Let me tell you something, folks. They say I'm on the ropes now. Not because of anything I've done in my public life. Not because of anything I've said to you. Nobody questions, if you really ask them, who had the best chance to turn this country around and lead this country and make a difference? Who's got a good plan? Not because of anything I've done to embarrass myself or my campaign or anything else. They say, I'm on the road because other people have questioned my life after years of public service. I'll tell you something. I'm going to give you this election back. And if you'll give it to me, I won't be like George Bush. I'll never forget who gave me a second chance. And I'll be there for you till the last dog dies. And I want you to remember it. Till the last dog dies. What an incredible folksy phrase. Right there, just summing up that, that live free or die spirit of the people of New Hampshire. And suddenly people started coming back to his campaign. So that 1992 Bill Clinton in New Hampshire now is, is folklore uh, amongst the Democratic Party and amongst the people who live there. So I thought I'd just give the last word on this section back to Scott, our friend from New Hampshire, about how he remembers it and how it affects the primaries later to come. Yeah, I covered that election actually as a journalist. And most people don't remember that uh, Bill Clinton lost the New Hampshire primary. Paul Songus beat him. But because Clinton was savvy enough to dub himself the comeback kid, because remember he was coming off a number of scandalous stories about his personal life, uh, he declared himself the comeback kid and the de facto winner of the Democrat primary. And truth be told, you know, it set him up for the rest of the way because Songus didn't really have a political base outside of New Hampshire like Clinton did, particularly down south. So down south is where we're going next week in episode four when we look at the South Carolina primary and the Nevada caucus, of course, both of which were a lot, lot warmer than New Hampshire. But before we leave the state, I wanted to go up right to the very, very north of it in order to go to a small place called Dixville Notch, which has an incredible, uniquely American voting tradition. Now, in order to do this, I went and teamed up with a good friend of mine called Catherine Schwartz, who I'd known since university, and her boyfriend, who, quite frankly, is eternally put upon, and a wonderful guy called Jeff Friedman, who agreed to drive me all the way up there. So we're driving through the New Hampshire countryside. I'm with my very good friend, Catherine Schwartz. Hello. And Jeff Friedman. Hey. 
so the first thing to say is I'd like barely met Jeff, Catherine's boyfriend at all before, and he, like an absolute hero, took a whole day off work and drove us all the way from his home in Lebanon, New Hampshire, all the way up to Dixville Notch. Now, this was the best part of like a four-hour round drive there and back. And all the poor lad got the whole way was grief from his girlfriend. What seems to be just we turn left here? Right. We turn right? Yeah. We, we, took, a, we took a ride off sure? of this. You bet. You looked down the phone and that's what the phone yeah, told you? Yeah, and also common sense. We just came from this direction. We're turning right here. But maybe we missed it. Or no, we, we definitely didn't miss it. In the edit, I'll make sure to let everyone see what hard time she gives you, Jeff. <laughs> I hope, make sure that you also, you also let the record be known that I was right every single time. <laughs> In fact, you could end I'm the sure podcast on that. I'm sure I'll get one better after this. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to point out that I was correct about yeah. The drive up through New Hampshire I'd always expected to be absolutely fantastic, especially in the autumn when we were there, but it just blew me away. The colours were spectacular. So in a quick move to try and maintain some semblance of premarital bliss, I thought I'd switch the subject to conversation. <laughs> Just want to say a bit about the colour of the trees for me and how beautiful it's been on the drive up here? The colour of the trees is tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Huge. Huge colours. Huge colours. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere you look, colour. Exactly. We do good colours and this is a good colour. The best colours. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like your best mates don't want a microphone stuck in their face every two minutes. Now, Catherine is as bright as they come. She has got PhDs coming out of her ears. But on mic descriptions of naturally occurring foliage, mm, perhaps not necessarily her thing. However, in the words of Mitch McConnell describing Elizabeth Warren, nevertheless, she persisted. They're, they're, the seasons are changing, they're really bright. But the most beautiful ones are the, are the ones that are sort of neon orange, but also with the bright red, so you get this really crazy... So people actually come up here to like look effect. at the trees changing, no, it's like a thing, peeping is a thing. Leaf peeping. Leaf, leaf peeping, yep. people make the pilgrimage. Oh yeah. Apple picking. Because in the UK we get autumns every year, kind of across the whole country, so I think people are a bit more used to it. They don't really, um, I don't know. Perhaps I spoke too soon. I didn't do wonderfully well there myself. And it turns out that slagging off their autumns is actually something that people from New Hampshire take quite seriously. So I thought I'd change the subject again, this time back to politics. I think when you go into rural areas, I can understand, I can't, don't say I agree with it, but I can understand far more two things that I wholly alien to my own political worldview. One is gun ownership and two is like the lack of wish for federal involvement. Because you're so isolated you think, well I would need some capacity to defend myself because the police are going to take like two hours to get here. And two, you can kind of understand more the wish not to have a centralised, you know, government that redistributes wealth and creates an NHS and things like that because people are more independent yeah. and far away from others. But. Well, except that a large part of the redistribution of the wealth is farm subsidies and, uh, or, you know, building rural infrastructure. Or social services. Yeah, um, it's very, it's hard to know. Drug abuse is quite rampant. Really? Up here. Yeah, that's like the number one political issue right now. And there aren't very many treatment facilities for it. Um, there aren't very many great sort of medical centers anyway, and, and there are obviously Aren't very many places that uh, employ here. So you, you. And so this county, you were saying, one of you was saying on the way up, is uh, renowned for being a beautiful but quite poor county. 
Yeah, it's called the, well, the, the just sort of geographical area is called the Northeast Kingdom. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very sparsely populated area. It's a very beautiful area. Um, but also, also tends to have a lot of socioeconomic, uh, tends to score low on socioeconomic but rather than um, being group people who then vote for kind of progressive redistributive politics, they tend to be Trump supporters from what we've seen. Uh, yes, I think it is renowned for being quite right-wing. Ah, the Bulls Arms. We've just passed in the sign. Welcome to the Extreme Lodge. This must be it. Excellent. Should we get a photograph resourced by the sign? So if you think that was bad, imagine sitting in the car with me going on like that for three and a half hours. That was what Jeff and, and Catherine as well had to put up with. But we got there eventually to the Balsams Hotel up in Dixfield Notch in the very northern tip of New Hampshire, just 20 miles south of the Canadian border. And it is a sight to behold when you arrive. But also windy as hell. So we're here, we've arrived at the Balsams in Dixville Notch in North New Hampshire. And, and first and foremost, the thing to say about it is the absolutely incredible setting that it's set in. It doesn't disappoint at all when you drive up to it. It's set in this valley of the most fantastic granite mountains. You can see now why New Hampshire is called the Granite State. Absolutely beautiful. And at the heart of it, you have this old historic hotel, which is absolutely falling to pieces. Um, on one part, you can see the oldest part of the building. It's fantastic old, uh, now grey and concrete that was built out of, but with an almost Italianate look with the green and then the terracotta coloured slates. And then on the other side, you've got this kind of traditional old New England wood panelling. These fantastic apartments now in total disrepair, half the building fallen down and the windows put out. But you can tell what a fantastic resort it once would have been. In fact, it was so windy that not only can you barely hear a word I was saying, but I actually lost my hat at one point as well. So we quickly ducked behind the car door to give you a final taste of what it felt like to arrive. I think I'm pleased. So I kind of had this picturesque view of driving down through the mountains and emerging, and it does actually do that. Like yeah. the setting in this valley, Disney-like. By, it's Disney-like. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And we've come on such a glorious day with all the colours and everything. And um, even the fog, though, gives it some sort of a, a majestic. It's certainly got something about it which yeah. makes it kind of. There's a degree of sublime about it, isn't there? Like it's, it, you can tell it, it. If it was done up well, it's not just going to be a nice hotel. It's going right. to be a real thing that people want to come to and look at. Um, right. So a notch, I suppose, I should say at this point, is a beautiful New England phrase that effectively describes a, a passage, a cut through between two mountains. So as we descended down into it, suddenly this spectacular, glistening lake just emerged out of nowhere, and then set behind it was this fantastic, grand old hotel, which now was lying there in rack and ruins, but you can see that in its heyday, after the war years, when it was synonymous with wealthy American families summering there, how magnificent it would have been, the grounds that it was set in, the opportunities for hunting nearby, and now it was looking to be renovated as a ski resort. But more importantly than that, it has a fantastic tradition within the history of electing American US presidents. So we went inside to find out more about that. Um, so yeah, so this is where the vote itself took place. So, um, if you were to walk in the front door, what you would have seen would have been just risers upon risers upon risers in the back half of the room, and we had stanchions in the front because the media is like, this is a huge media event. In this teeny little room, we had 65 media personnel. Think of all the cameras and all the equipment, right? It's just not 65 people. We've got all of that extra stuff. 
Um, and on the porch, we had rows and rows of tables so they could do all their writing because it's like it's a huge deal to get your stories out first, of course. Um, so you've got like seven and a half press for every voter. Pardon? <laughs> about seven and a half press. Yeah, for about every that. Voter. About that. <laughs> So it's about time I explain why exactly it is we've come all this way, because it's a magnificent hotel, but why is it more important to the people of New Hampshire in the election than any other? And it all centres around a fantastic guy called Neil Tillotson, who was the owner of the hotel in the 1960s. Now Tillotson, above everything else, was a savvy businessman, and he discovered a peculiar little quirk of New Hampshire electoral law, which says if there's been a 100% voter turnout in a district, so if every single person who's entitled to vote has done, then you're allowed to close the polling station early because nobody else can turn up to vote. So his idea, given that there was no rule about the time that you could open the voting in the morning of the election day, was to open it at midnight exactly, line up all the people in the district so that they all voted at exactly that moment, and then close the polls immediately so that his hotel could host and publish the first electoral votes to come out of the state. And the media flocked to it. They came to his hotel, they publicised it around the world, and now you have the international press going there every four years for what they call the very first vote in the first of the nation. And so the theory goes, if you do well in Dixville Notch, then actually that result will get published in time for the press who pick it up on the actual primary day itself, and candidates can get a bit of a bounce out of that. And it's seen as another way of going into the New Hampshire primary with a show of strength, showing that you're doing quite well. And subsequently, candidates over the years, including Reagan and Bush and McCain and a whole variety of them, whose pictures now line the walls of what's called the old voting room, have come up here to meet the just 10, 12 people who are allowed to vote in the hope of winning them over and winning in Dixville Notch and getting this early bounce. So I wanted to find out a bit more about the vote itself and how it actually worked. So here's our friend again who showed us around the hotel. So on the fireplace, that was our big backdrop. That is the official First of the Nation sign that is from within the hotel as well. That's the historic sign you'll see all over the place. Um, and we had our moderator sitting just in front and on top of his table was the ballot box. And it's a, it's a very choreographed procession. At about quarter to midnight, the voters come into this room again. Everybody else is all ready to go. It's all staged. You've got, you've got all like the, there's so much energy. It's incredible for voting. <laughs> so you've got, so you have the, you have a procession of all the voters. They come in, they pick up their, their ballots, and they go fill in. And then once they have, once they're ready to go, they stand in a single file line beside the ballot box. And at the exact stroke of midnight, like we've all got our clocks and. Uh, there's, there are rumors that they used to go just a little bit before midnight because they turn up some of the clocks. <laughs> um, so but stroke of midnight, they drop them in. It's again, you have to be fast. So they all go drop, 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 drop. The box, the ballot box gets brought into a little room and they do their count and they, they write it on the board. It was always a handwritten board. I mean, we didn't want to do it anymore. Technologically advanced, it always has been. So you come out and, and that's your tally and you announce and, and it's just this huge, I mean, think as many photographs as you can imagine, film crew, we had Fox News, and I, I think we had CNN, we had, oh my goodness, just live stream, it was, it was so much fun. So the whole thing is explained as this great celebration of democracy, and in some ways I suppose it really is. But I had a couple of questions because it seems strange to me that everybody who was allowed to vote there had to really do so in a way where everyone could tell who they voted for and in front of their employer. You're in the North Country that we're in is very sparsely populated to begin with. Plus, Dixville not really only exists as a as a residence because of the balsams. So the residents here who are voting were the owners of the hotel, you know, the head chef, the <laughs> the managers. Those were the residents, and then their families. You didn't really have a lot of 
other people because there's the neighboring towns that really held the population. I was reading a lot about Tillotson the Elder and when he and and so is it did he did he because this wasn't the first place to do midnight voting. It was, it was not the no most successful one. Correct. Did he do it out of a love of democracy or did he do it because he was a savvy businessman? Internally, I think he's a savvy businessman. I think both. I think there is a little bit of both. I mean, for him to have even known about it and to have cared about it, right. I, I mean, he had to be at least somewhat interested in politics. So not having met the gentleman in, in, in person, <laughs> I'm going to say it's a little bit of both, though, and that he knew that he could help create the balls and make it a little more successful by creating a little more attention, and, and he turned it into a thing. And a thing, indeed, it now very much is. But speaking of savvy businessmen, I couldn't leave without talking to the guy who's now taken on a $190 million worth of renovation project of the Bolsons. His name is Les Otten, and I started by asking him the same question. Namely, was it Tillerson's intention, and was it your intention, to promote the hotel, or is this really about the American voting tradition? So um, that was uh, the motivation, um, but the outgrowth of that and the tradition is what's really extraordinary because in this little community, for 56 years, every citizen has voted in every election. And that's really a sort of a, a, a calling card for democracy, the way it's supposed to work. And I think we continue the tradition more not for the publicity of the Balsams Resort, but more to make a statement that voting is important and that if you have the opportunity and set an example, that wouldn't it be great if 100% of the population of the world voted? Um, you need 100% turnout to be able to hold it at midnight, is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. yes. How does that work? Um, we pretty much have a conversation with everybody, find out where they are. Um, if they're in need of an absentee ballot, um, that can be provided. So, uh, yeah, we... you ever have anybody not show up for the vote? No. If it happened that they don't show up, then that's the risk. You, you, can't, you can't count the vote until everybody's in. And nobody's ever held his ransom and said, yeah, sure, I'll vote, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> and so with my faintly threatening suggestion ringing in the ears of the catering staff nearby who you could see thinking mm, that could possibly be a good idea we left the Balsams and headed back down south but as we left Dixville Notch I was just left with this incredible sense that yet here again was this microcosm of an incredible process which is just convoluted and gloriously American in equal measure this this historical concoction of federalism and frontierism and time and time again the power of money and advertising like so many parts of the country, some really, really wonderful things mixed with some things that a more cynical take on it would be perhaps less slightly happy with, but nonetheless a real sight to behold. So be sure to check it out again this year as they're set to do midnight voting at one minute past midnight in the morning of Tuesday the 11th of February for the New Hampshire primary, and then again in November for the general election. So back down south to the streets of Concord and Manchester and Lebanon and everywhere else across New Hampshire where people are now discussing who they're going to vote for for president for a bit about the history of the primary and how the primary works. Now primaries are a lot more simple than caucuses in that you don't have to go into a room, you don't have to shout at each other. They're just an election like any other. You turn up, you put your ex in a box and you vote in a very, very traditional sense. But crucially there's two different types. There's open primaries and there's what's called closed primaries. Now, closed primaries are a lot more what you would like expect in the UK, say when the Tory party or the Labour party are electing their leader, in that you have to be a member of that party and you invariably have to have been a member for quite a while in order to be able to qualify for vote. But New Hampshire is an open primary, 
which means that anybody can come along and register on that day. Now, they still have to register their interest for a particular party or indeed as an independent. So you don't have to be a die-hard political geek or a fees-paying member who goes along to party meetings in order to get a say on who you want to be the presidential candidate for either the Democrats or the Republicans. And that means, crucially, that it gives a far broader, a far wider picture of somebody's electability. The parties are able to select candidates who appeal to people who can vote in the general election as well, and not just the hardcore party faithful. Now the question of why the New Hampshire primary is the first primary in the nation is an interesting one, but sadly the only answer to the question of why I can find is because it just is, and it always has been. And in fact it's so important to the state now and to its economy in terms of the amount of money that it brings in, that the New Hampshire legislature has actually written into state law that it will always be the first in the nation primary to vote. But whilst it's always been the first, it hasn't necessarily always been the most important. For a long time it was just a way of electing convention delegates and it didn't take on a huge amount of importance at all. Until 1968, when Lyndon Baines Johnson was running for re-election as president for his what would be second and a half term after the assassination of John Kennedy, when an anti-war candidate called Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota threw his hat into the ring and ran against the president in New Hampshire and only lost by eight points. Now, Johnson won that primary in New Hampshire but it was seen as a weak win, and subsequently, a short time afterwards, he pulled out. And so if a poor showing in the New Hampshire primary was so important to a sitting president that he decided to not go through the rest of the primary season because he thought he might lose, then all of a sudden it became very, very clear to all the candidates how important winning in New Hampshire really was. And the rest, as they say, is history, and what a fascinating history it has indeed been. Now, I know we touched on Bill Clinton earlier, but I just want to tell a few of the small stories very quickly about the presidential candidacies which have been made and broken in New Hampshire over the years. And the first one is about Governor, as he then was, Ronald Reagan, back in 1980, when he was running in an incredibly tightly fought race against George H.W. Bush. Now let me cut a very long and quite complicated story short here and cut to the chase. When you're stumbling for president, the best thing to do is show the skills that you want to embody rather than just write about them or talk about how you have them in speeches the whole time. And that was what Reagan was trying to do. But he was having real trouble because Bush Sr. had come out of Iowa with a relatively speaking surprise win and he had the big mo, he had the momentum. Reagan needed a way back. Polls showed that he was nine points behind Bush in New Hampshire and needed a way of proving that he was the stronger candidate come the general election. Now, there were five other candidates running, but both Bush and Reagan had a vested interest in portraying themselves as the only two people in the race and having a face-off one-to-one so that they could try and put the other to bed once and for all. So the Nashua Telegraph newspaper agreed to host a debate with just the two of them and none of the other candidates. But the FEC, the Federal Election Committee, wrote to them both saying this could be a violation of the law. Now, Reagan had a clever work around this. They called it a private debate and he wrote a cheque for $3,500 so that just he and Bush could debate each other. On the day of the debate itself, however, Reagan changed his mind. All the other candidates had been up in arms and written to him and said it was unfair, and he then decided that they should be included. Bush, however, wanted to continue with the current plan and said that they shouldn't be. A whole bizarre and protracted series of backstage negotiations went on, Bush refusing to go out there, Reagan insisting that they did, and all the other four candidates kind of loitering around on stage, waiting for something to happen, with nobody really knowing what was going to go ahead. The moderator tried to start the debate and tried to offer some introductory remarks, but he was kind of shouted over and the whole thing just fell into total and utter chaos, at which point Reagan piped up. It was at this point that the moderators tried to cut him off to stop him from speaking. And Reagan, sensing his moment to come across as authoritative and full of leadership skills, took control of the situation in a way that meant that he won the debate before it had even started. Is this on? 
Mr. Green, could you turn on my phone? You ask for me if you would... I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green. And with those immortal lines, I am paying for this microphone, Reagan physically embodied the characteristics of authoritative leadership rather than just telling people that he had them. So you've got to show strength and you've got to show leadership and you've got to talk to people about how voting for you is going to impact upon their pockets if you want to do well in New Hampshire. There's a whole number of other questions within the primaries about things that used to be important and whether or not they're still important in terms of winning the nomination. Now, one of these examples is endorsements by major newspapers. The biggest newspaper in the state traditionally has been the Union Leader. And much like the Des Moines Register in Iowa, each time round it will uh, announce its support, its endorsement for a particular candidate. Now, nowadays, when a lot of press is online, I think folk are far more likely to be swayed by what their Facebook friends are saying than what a newspaper of relatively low print circulation is saying. But that wasn't always the case. Back in 1972, uh, the union leader wrote a stinging editorial, having a real go at a guy called Ed Muskie, who was a senator for Maine, and having a go not only at his candidacy, but actually also saying some pretty provocative and nasty things about his wife. Now, just as an aside, I came across this story for the first time in a book called Whistle Stop by a guy called John Dickinson, who, if you like this kind of stuff, read his book and listen to his podcast as well as mine, I hasten to add, because um, he highlights what happened to Muskie when he decided in the bitter cold of New Hampshire to go and give the New Hampshire Union leader a piece of his mind. I'll let Scott, our friend from New Hampshire, pick up the story once more. Yeah, so Ed Muskie, uh, back in the early 70s, had uh, a real beef with the Union leader out of Manchester, um, which was owned by, at the time, William Loeb uh, and his wife, Naki Loeb, who were, who were, you know, True, true blue Republicans and, and conservative Republicans at that. And they didn't want Muskie to win. And I was just a kid at the time, so I don't remember spe specific details, but uh, the union leader had written a really tough editorial about Muskie. And his campaign decided that in response, he was going to hold a press conference in front of the union leader's headquarters in downtown Manchester. It turned out to be one of those days where it was kind of spitting uh, snow and sleet, and so it was just a wet atmosphere. And whether, you know, there's been a great debate as to whether Muskie actually cried during that press conference or if it was just a snowflake that, you know, hit him in the cheek and melted. But it sure was reported that, you know, that, you know, he cried at his own press conference in front of the union leader, and that, that really sunk him in New Hampshire. I think there's some interesting parallels to the British system here because I think perhaps crying in the middle of the New Hampshire primary is probably the political equivalent of Ed Miliband poorly eating a bacon sandwich, shall we say, or do you remember when he was on the interview uh, with Jeremy Paxman and he had that, are you tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. When people do those things that don't quite chime with the national psyche, then it tends to hurt them politically. So after all that, you'd be forgiven for thinking that you've got to be really tough and gritty um, and that crying doesn't help you in the slightest if you're running in a tough granite state like New Hampshire but actually perhaps 
like always, there's exceptions that prove the rule, and that's not necessarily the case. In 2016, Hillary Clinton, coming on the back of a minor win against Bernie Sanders uh, in the Iowa caucus, she won by 49.84% to 49.59%, came over to New Hampshire. Her campaign was flagging slightly because she could just see what happened against Barack Obama, potentially happening to her again as Bernie Sanders rocketed through the polls. He was winning in New Hampshire, and she went into a coffee shop one morning, and she just broke down in tears. You know, I have so many opportunities from this country. I just don't want to see us fall backwards. You know, so. But for Clinton, as opposed to Muskie, people really warmed to her because of this. As controversial perhaps it is to say, a lot of people reported afterwards as having said, we felt we saw a human side to Hillary Clinton for the first time. And so for me, what I think it says about the voters in New Hampshire is that what they really value, perhaps above everything else, is sincerity. Muskie went out there trying to look like a tough guy, trying to confront somebody and potentially cried. Hillary Clinton went in there and showed some real honesty and sincerity and some openness for the first time. And the voters rewarded her for it. Now, she didn't win the New Hampshire primary that year. She lost it to Bernie Sanders. But do you know what happened? She didn't lose it by as many votes as she thought she would. And so for the second time, New Hampshire made a Clinton the comeback kid. And so on that note, uh, as you probably wipe the tears from your eyes, given the merciful news this episode is finally coming to an end, let me just say do not forget to join us next time in episode four, where we race nearly the entire way across the country to the desert state of Nevada for the Nevada caucuses via the Bellagio Hotel in Viva Las Vegas, and then down to the deep south for the very first time to take in the South Carolina primary, where people stumping to try and become the next president have to confront both the religious vote and the African-American vote for the first time really. But if you can't wait until then, feel very free to check out our website, which is www.howtobecomepresident.com because on there, there's not only the entire back catalogue of the podcast series so far, but also articles which we've written and some video vodcasts from our time on the road in Iowa and New Hampshire. But failing everything else, I will see you in South Carolina where we're going to be discussing Jesus, how he definitely would have been a fan of both guns and abortion, apparently, and also some bizarre cheesy food they've got called grits. Over and out. How to Become President of the United States was written and presented by Dave Smith. I hope you enjoyed listening.